Well, on Monday, it was my intention to preach from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through verse 25. That's why I wanted Zach to, to play all, all Creatures of Our God and King, which we'll sing at the end of the service today, uh, because I was going to sing about God creating the creatures, but on Friday, when my sermon was only at verse 3, I decided I would just tack on verses 4 and 5, and we'd try to get through the first day. We'll try to get through the first day of creation. And so we're looking at this morning, focusing on verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 25, because many of the things that we're going to front load on the first day of creation follow through and apply to the other days of creation as well. This is the word of God from Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great creatures and every living creature that moves with which it waters swarm according to its kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying that be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. 
I mentioned in my introductory sermon in Genesis that this is a book about God. And yet, I think our tendency is to open Genesis to the creation account and read it as a science textbook. We bring our public educations and our scientific minds about the Big Bang Theory and evolutionary theory as believers. We hope to find counter-arguments with which to defeat secular faith. That's an interesting thing, secular faith. I say secular faith because the Big Bang does not explain where everything comes from. They demand that you produce scientific evidence for your biblical worldview. They're, they're just theories. They're just theories that require a secular faith. Evolution is a theory that requires a secular faith. So when you go to school or you watch National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, you know, they're all demanding that you, Christian, provide scientific evidence for your biblical worldview, and you feel a little embarrassed that you're in the minority of people who hold a biblical worldview rather than a scientific worldview. You want answers from Genesis about the length of a day and the prior properties of light. And you want computer-generated images of what, what the beginning looked like and how loud the Big Bang was and the sequence of the dinosaurs and the pre-hominids. And, and those are good questions. Those are important questions. They're just not the right questions. They are questions that Genuine science should pursue in the extent that the empirical method can, but mere empiricism is limited in answering questions about things we cannot go back and observe. Fails to get there. Speculation and theory do not sit in judgment of the Word of God. Rather, the Word of God, the creation account, sits in judgment over scientific discovery. Because genuine scientific discovery only communicates what God has created anyway. Our problem, you and me, believers in the church, is that we read Genesis as a revelation of creation, but we're meant to read Genesis as a revelation of the Creator. We're meant to ask the right questions about God, because those answers are provided. But I want to know everything that there is to know about the secular arguments and about the origins of the universe and the origins of man. I, I, I want to know Christian apologetics so I can argue in the classroom and win. Apologetics are useful. And they certainly have their place. And we can all stand to be better Christian apologists. But you won't argue people to faith in God. And you won't argue people to believe uh, to leave their secular faith, although they won't call it that, to believe in the Genesis account of creation. Why? The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 1, you know this, it's the hall of faith, right? And your mind is already going to faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation, and, and what did they believe by faith? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Moses didn't write Genesis to beef up your secular resume and win theoretical debates. 
The purpose of Genesis is to strengthen your faith in God. The question is, which do you think you need more? Genesis is about God. It tells us who God is, which is what we should want to know by telling us what he does and what he says. Look again at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The origin of everything is God, which means he pre-existed. It is God who is eternal. He is the origin of time, space, and matter. Everything, everything is his creation. He made it. He owns it. He has rightful authority over it, all of it. The Hebrew word here, to create, is only applied to God in Scripture. Did you know that? Later in the Bible, men will make things, men will assemble things, men will build things, but no man creates things, not with this word that's reserved for God alone. Only God creates, because only God is the creator. And what's impressive is that God creates everything out of nothing. Out of nothing. There was nothing, and then God spoke, and what God spoke came into being. Now, we're going to see the greatness of God's power in creation, but there's something else to notice about that. God's creative power is not only great, it's effortless. When you exert power, you, know, you, get, you get all shaky and wobbly after a while, and you sweat, and you got to go and rest, and, 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 and it's effortless for God. At the end of God's work week, so to speak. There'll be a day of rest, but not because God's exhausted. We might say he didn't even break a sweat. His power is great and his power is effortless. And so verse 1 declares that God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, as you look at it, goes on to tell us how God created the earth. Well, wait a minute. What about the heavens? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now here's how God went about creating the earth. Wait, what about the heavens? What about the place where God dwells and the angels live and the streets of gold? How did God create that? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. <clears throat> the word heavens is used in three different ways. There's the heaven that God creates where he and the angels reside. There's the heaven where, <clears throat> let's say, the stars and the moon reside. You know, the universe, outer space. And then there's the heaven in the sky where the birds fly and where the clouds make rain. The heavens in verse 1 is the heaven where God and the angels dwell. It's the spiritual realm that God created. And we learn some things about the spiritual realm in various places throughout Scripture, but that is not part of the earth's story. And he doesn't tell us about it. The heavens where the sun, moon, and the stars live, and the heavens where the birds fly and the clouds float, 
are part of the earth's story. They are part of the material realm. So we can read Genesis 1, 1 and 2 in this way. In the beginning, God created the spiritual realm and the material realm. Now, here's how God went about creating that material realm. Because that's what you need to know about. God is letting us know that we don't need to know about the spiritual realm. Except those things that he will later reveal in in their context in Scripture. God is telling us about the world we live in because that's what we need to know, what we should want to know. We need to know about God and this world. We need to know what it means to be humans and we need to know what went wrong. And we need to know how he's going to go about fixing it. You'll notice in your outline, I've got eight points that I want to make as we go through this sermon, and here's point number one, things that we're learning about God. God does not reveal everything to us. He does not tell us about heaven and the cherubim and the seraphim. We do need to know what he has already told us in just the very first verse of Scripture. That the earth is not eternal, but God is eternal. That the earth did not make itself but God created everything. Therefore, this material world, what we experience in our limited number of days, is not all there is to life. Right? But why? Why is, why is God like that? Because he is. And Moses backs this up in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. He writes, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. For what reason? That we may do all of the words of his law. But why? Why are there secret things? Because you don't need to know. God has determined that you don't need to know for your good. Which means that the heavenly realm is hidden as a mercy of God. You, you remember that movie, A Few Good Men, and, and you know, Jack Nicholson says to Tom Cruise, you want to know the truth? And Tom Cruise says to Jack Nicholson, I want to know the truth. And Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. You remember that scene? You know, Jesus told his disciples that he had many, many things that he wanted to teach them, but he would tell them later because they just couldn't handle it right now. They lacked the capacity to understand, and it would only burden them with unnecessary confusion. So don't go chasing after the things of the spiritual realm that God has mercifully hidden from you for your good. That's dangerous. Remember, there is more to life than what you see in this world. What you need to know is that the Holy Spirit of God is here in this world. Verse 2 gives us a glimpse 
of the earliest conceivable moment in the creation act and what it looked like. There are three statements in verse 2. One, the earth was without form and void. Two, darkness was over the face of the deep. Three, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth, as it comes immediately from God's hand, is without form. It's, it's shapeless. It's just described as waters, as an abyss. What does it look like? Well, we don't know because it's utter darkness. We can't see anything, but we're told that it's empty. It's without form and it's void. It's there in this earliest moment, and yet it isn't anything yet. But in six days, God is going to form it and he's going to fill it. He's going to form a fertile planet and give it an atmosphere. Above it, skies, and above that, a universe. He's going to shape this formless abyss into a habitable place. Then he's going to fill it with wonderful things, beautiful things, stars and galaxies, planets and moons, birds and fish, animals and fertile fruit-bearing trees and vegetation. It's going to be a beautiful garden. And then he's going to create mankind and place them in the middle of that garden. Why doesn't he do just all of that in verse 2? Why doesn't God just make it like that from the very beginning? Why does God take six days and and several steps in the creation process? What's point two about God? God does not do everything all at once. Just look at your Bible. God, look at your Bible. Here's God creates in Genesis, and God reveals himself, and God recreates in Genesis through the flood, and God reveals himself through his prophets, and then he, he rebuilds Jerusalem later, and God reveals himself through Jesus the Son, and, and then God builds his church, and God is moving, and he's active, and he's restoring his fallen creation into his forever kingdom in the, in the book of Revelation when you get to the end, but it doesn't all happen at once. God works through process and pattern over time. He reveals truths and promises and proves himself faithful and trustworthy. So we know that he who begins a good work completes his good work. You know, you may ask this question about your own life. Why why aren't things happening just immediately? You ask that, don't you? We all want the blessings of heaven on earth now. We want to be freed from those, these mortal bodies and receive glorified bodies now. We want an end to the striving and we want rest now. Why do we have to wait? Because this is how our God works. God is patient. And it's very merciful to us that he is. You really don't want it to be the other way around. And by his grace, his spirit produces the fruit of patience in our lives. So that waiting on God is not a problem. Right? You don't have any problem waiting on God, right? Because he's given you the spirit and the fruit of the spirit, which is patience. Okay, Scott, but what does that do for me right now? Quite a lot, actually. 
Are you concerned with what's happening in the world? Are you anxious about how things are going in your own nation? How about in your own life? Your marriage, your children, your family, your workplace, your school, or your hidden sins, your lack of reading the Bible, your lack of communing with God in prayer. The Spirit of God is working in you to bring about your sanctification. And it's a process. Be patient. God is at work right now to form you in Christ and to fill you with Christ. The second half of verse 2 says that, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. To our detriment, I think we usually kind of just blow by this verse. Well, you know, creation is the work of God, the Spirit does the work of God, and so of course the Spirit's there. I mean, I just kind of like God's sidekick, okay, over here at creation. Besides, he's not really doing anything important. He's just hovering, hanging out. But I think the presence of the Holy Spirit in the very beginning of creation tells us something incredibly important about God. It's point three. The presence of the Holy Spirit shows God's intense care for his creation. See, this word hovering, it's used to describe a bird as it, as it hovers over something. You can kind of picture that, right? There's always these word pictures and Hebrew words. The verb hovering, though, is not a gentle verb. It's an intensive verb. It's, that's, the difference is the difference is between tapping somebody and popping somebody, right? This hovering is not this. This hovering is intense. It's an active verb. It's a participle. So the Holy Spirit is hovering. It's hovering above the dark abyss that it's about to be formed according to God's will. And the Holy Spirit is holding it in his hands. He's in control of it. He's overseeing it. He's superintending to make sure that everything happens just as he wills. And we should expect this of the Holy Spirit of God. It's like the Holy Spirit in Job chapter 23 when Job says, The Spirit of God has made me, creation, made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Or Psalm 104 verse 30, When you send forth your Spirit, O God, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. Or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Or maybe when, maybe when God says to the angel Gabriel to go, go and speak to a virgin named Mary. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Gabriel says. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Do you see the creation motif? Do you see the life-giving motif of the Spirit? 
In Acts chapter 17, Paul tells the learned men in Athens that it is God who made the world and everything in it. They're staring at a statue, an empty pedestal really, where there's no statue of the God they don't know about, but they're trying to cover all their bases with all their theories and with all their wisdom. And Paul says, it is God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, whom you're looking for. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and it is in him that we live and move and have our being. In the Spirit of God. You see, God is not a far-off, disinterested creator. His Spirit is active, not only in our salvation, He was present and active at creation, giving life. And he, since then, is in and around and through the world, all of it, always. I don't want to be interested in the spirit realm that creation says nothing about. I'm interested in knowing this spirit, this Holy Spirit, who's in my world, my material realm, He's the spirit who leads sinners to Christ and gives people life with God. I'm interested in that. And the presence of the Holy Spirit shows God's intense care for his creation, especially mankind. Let's pick up in verse 3. Look at these verses again. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness was called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. On the first day, something amazing happens. Dark, abyss, formless, void. And then we hear, you realize this, right? We hear the first recorded words of God in Scripture. And God said, It's command, let there be light. And then there's a response. And there was light. I think we're meant to read it that way. I think we're meant to understand it that way. It's shocking. This is staggering. But here's where we get off track. We read the creation account, and and it says God created light, and there was light, and, and we're caught staring at the light. We're caught staring at the created thing instead of God. On the first day, God creates light. It's a light that shines independent of the sun because the sun has yet to be created. And it's not God shining. It's a light that shines independent of God. It's over here. He created it, and it came into being. That's amazing. But you know what's more amazing? The God who created it with the power of his word. That's amazing. See, but we get caught staring at the light. Whoa, the light comes into place. Uh, Wow. Could you tell me more about the properties of that light? I'm really interested in that. And and it's the other things that God creates too. That, That vegetation, how did it sprout up from the ground again? Or, or maybe the birds on day five. Which is it that came first? The, the egg or the chicken? Which? 
The creation account is filled with action verbs, and all of them are attached to God as the subject. We prefer to look at the nouns, the created things. Now, it's important to see creation, but it's vital to see God. So when God says, let there be light, and there is light, and our attention, our attention grows over here to this light that's shining in the darkness, and we think that's amazing, what's meant to happen is that our attention then is to swing back to God and say, you did that? You made that appear? That's where our focus is supposed to be. You're amazing. I want to know more about the light, but first, I want to know more about God. That's our reaction in Genesis. You see, it's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of priorities. You see, God is the subject. And in these three verses, God does four things. God is active and he does four things. God speaks, God sees, God separates, and God names. You know, I was reading one commentary and, and, and he was pointing out these same things, only he said, here's what we find in these verses. The divine, the divine word, the divine observance, the divine separation, the divine naming. He turned the verbs into nouns. These aren't nouns. This is our active God, our powerful God doing things. And our first reaction should be, wait, God speaks? God speaks? Yes. We should be staggered by that. There is a God and he speaks. And I think there are a couple important things we learn about God when he speaks light into existence on the first day. There are points four and five, if you're following along on your outline. Point four is this. God's word reveals his absolute power. When God speaks, his word reveals his absolute power and his will. God's will is always done. When God says, let there be light, he's expressing his will. Why does light then appear? Because of God's absolute power to bring about God's will. So here's a question. To whom is God's will expressed? Who's he talking to when he says, let there be light? Not to light, because it doesn't exist yet. God issued a command to nothing. And light shone. That's power. If you don't recognize what power is, read that over. That's power. And I want to offer just a couple of practical applications of this. The first one's powerful and the second one's comforting. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, like we just did, we pray for the Lord's will to be done, knowing that it will be. Right? Isn't that how you pray that? We pray for the Lord's will to be done, knowing that it will be by His power. Which means that, think about this, 
our little prayers. For the will to be done in our little lives. In this little place. During this little time. Will be answered by the absolute power of God. In our lives. Our prayers for His will to be done in our lives will be answered by His power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's answering with His power the prayer for his will in your life. That's power. And that's God's will. For you to know God in Christ. Not only is that astounding, it's comforting. Listen to what Isaiah writes to the people in chapter 40, beginning verse 45. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you want to know about the light and the dry ground and the birds? Or do you want to know the God who wills to strengthen you by his power? Choose the creation or the created. Here's point five. God's word reveals his wisdom. God's word reveals his wisdom and his knowledge. When God called light into existence, he knew that light would come into existence. Creation expresses the knowledge of God. Creation is not a trial and error process. God doesn't have a pile of failed creations stacked up in his garage for you to go look at. Uh, yeah, here are the first 20. They didn't work out so well. When God spoke, he knew what would be. For that matter, he knew what could have been, though it wasn't. See, creation is not an experiment, which means you are not an accident. God did not just have beginner's luck on day one. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God knows. Even so, you may be asking, "Hmm, I've heard that before. Kind of ho-hum about it. So what? 
Well, let me offer you this. Do you remember Peter? You remember Peter in the Gospels? Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times on the night that he was taken, remember? But after his resurrection, uh, Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Does Jesus know? Peter, do you love me? You remember Peter's answer? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Does the Lord know your sin? Sure he does. He knows mine. What else does he know? He knows that you love him. He knows that you love him. He knows that you trust him even though you stumble. He knows that you believe in him even when you're afraid to tell others. He knows your struggles in the faith and the times when you doubt. And he knows that you love him. He knows everything. I think that's comforting. And it's rooted in creation. So God speaks and God sees. And God saw that the light was good. You know, there's more going on here than God simply recognizing that the light he created is going to be useful. (laughs) I can see things now. When God sees that the light is good, God God is assigning value to the light. Do you see that? He sees the light and he says, it's good. He's assigning value to that light. He does the same thing with other things he creates, the dry land, the fish, and the trees. The question is, by what standard does God determine that the light is good? Not just utilitarian, but good. That's point six. Here's something we learn about God himself. God has his own standard of goodness. God has his own standard of goodness. There was no other standard at creation. There was no competing standard at creation. God didn't create light and then look over at the panel of judges to see which numbers they held up. Oh, nine, 8.5, seven from the Russian judge. Eight, remember that? He doesn't do that. There is only one universal standard of goodness from the beginning, now, and forever. It's God's own standard, which implies two things. God delights and God defines. I'll work them together. God delights in his own work. How about that? God delights in his own work. It pleased him. God created the light and it pleased him. You see, if you didn't know, God glories in himself. God glories in himself. So God's creation did what he intended it to do. It glorified God. Which is right. Because God is glorious. Just just to square things away here, if Scott said that he was glorious, you would say, Scott is mistaken and deluded. He has gone off his rocker. 
his pride and hubris cannot be withstood by somebody like me. But if God, who is perfectly righteous and who is perfectly glorious, then glories in his glory. It is right, it is good, and it is true. That's important to learn about God on the first day of creation. He's perfect in any way, every way, and he rightfully delights in his glory. If he didn't, there'd be something wrong, you see. The equation wouldn't match. God's perfect, but, you know, he just still feels a little bad about himself. No, he's perfect, and he's perfectly contented and happy and glorious, and, he, and he, he thinks his work is awesome, because it is. And this, brothers and sisters, is where we tend to clash with God. Here's the clash. Every now and then, we would just like a little glory for ourselves. Every now and then, can't it be about me? But God has created all things according to his will, by his power, and for his glory. The fact that you want glory in God's creation is your problem, isn't it? Sure, it's called sin. It's called sin. You want what is not yours. We do not meet God's definition of good, which is perfection without sin. Even so, God has not denied us glory. He gives his glory to sinners. Sinners like us. And the way to that glory is through Christ. Because God delights in Christ. And when we see the glory of God as God's, and when we fall down on our faces before him for our wrong attitude of thinking that we deserve some glory, God grants glory to sinners. When we bow down to the Lord, when we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we renounce our sinful attitude of thinking we matter more, God grants glory through salvation because God delights in his son who atoned for sins on the cross and rose from the dead to do what? To bring many sons to glory, the Bible says. He's, God's pleased with his son because he does what he intended him to do, to bring glory. So God upholds his standard of goodness perfectly, even, even through Jesus' perfect sacrifice. So God speaks, God sees, and God separates. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, it's not as if you know, the light and the darkness kind of got mixed together. Like you, know, you put a little you know, cocoa quick powder in the milk, and it's, you, know, you can kind of see them separate, and then you stir a little bit, and they get, they get all mixed up, and it starts turning a muddy color. It's not white. It's not chocolate brown. And you know, they're, they're all mixed up. It doesn't have to be sieved or sifted out. It's not that there's... There's been a mixture like that. The verb to separate more accurately means to assign it its place. To assign it its place. And this happens on each day of creation. God assigns a place for everything he creates. God separates means that God assigned light its particular place. 
and he assigned darkness its particular place. And in this way, God is ordering. God is bringing order to his creation. Which teaches us something else about God in point seven. That God orders his creation. Nobody else orders it for him. Nobody else reorders it for him. God says, this is the place for light. And this is the place for darkness. And this is the place for dry land. And this is the place for the seas. No further. Why? Because God is defining the world and ordering his creation. He's putting each thing in its place to bring him glory. A place for everything and everything in its place. Creation was perfectly ordered. Just like your home. Right? <laughs> Just like your life. Right? Do things in your home seem out of order? Do things in your life seem random or haphazard. You know, at the end of Genesis, we'll read about Joseph, whose family was out of order. His brothers sold him into slavery. They threw him in a pit and waited for the slavers to come by and sold him. Later, his master, he's a slave now, his master in Egypt throws him in jail, which seems unfair. And yet, later in verse 8 of chapter 45, Joseph says this to those brothers. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. If your house, if your life seems out of order, there's comfort here. For it was not you who sent me here, but God. None of us seeks out trials and difficulties and suffering in this life. But they come to us anyway. They seem disorderly when they mess up our order. And they are often the result of sin in this fallen world. But they are not random. And you don't want them to be random. They are from God. And it's not about being fair or whether you deserve them or not. It's about God using all things for your good, if you believe in him, to make you like Christ and to bring about his glory. Well, there's one more verb, one more thing that God does on day one. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. You know, even though we are reading this as if it's, it's happening before our eyes, that's the kind of the fun part about, about Genesis, isn't it? It's almost like a video in word form. We're, we're reading it as if it's happening before our own eyes, but there, there are no eyewitnesses to creation, are there? Except God himself. 
The Holy Spirit is inspiring Moses to write this inspired true word of God. And Moses is writing this in the context of the ancient Near East. And every ancient Near Eastern culture understood that the right to name something or someone went to the person who had the rightful authority to do so. You have to have the right to name. So naming is an expression, an exercise of authority. More, the act of naming assumes understanding. You name a thing based on your understanding of the properties of that thing. You name a person because you understand the character of that person. Later on, God is going to rename Abram, Abraham, because he's the father of many nations, and so that's what that name means. He's going to He's going to rename Jacob, who was a deceiver, Israel, the 12 tribes, the nation. God has the authority to name, and he understands what he's naming and why he's giving it that name. Which leads me to my last point about God. Point eight, God has the authority and the understanding to name his creation. God understands what he has created. Remember? He said, let there be light. He knew there would be light. He knew its characteristics and its properties before he brought it into existence. And he names things accordingly. Naming is a recognition of God's authority and his perfect understanding and his perfect placement of everything according to his purposes for his glory And here's another big clash of worldviews. Here's where a sinful culture clashes with God. You know, I hadn't thought of it this way before. But a pastor friend told me that the right to name is the watershed issue of our time. Wait, what? This right to name, because you have the understanding of what something is and the authority to call it what you want to call it, God's naming, this this right to name is the watershed issue of our culture. And I think he's profoundly right. You see, God named himself you remember? I am who I am. Here in in Genesis, he's the God who is. In the beginning, there's the God who is. God named us based on his understanding of us, male and female. God named and defined marriage as between one man and one woman. God named and ordered the family as husbands and wives carry out God's command to be fruitful and to multiply based on his understanding that the life of a baby is sacred. God named these things. When people or a culture call a man a woman or name a woman a man, they lack understanding 
when two men or two women live together and call it marriage, they lack understanding. When mothers and fathers and doctors kill a baby in the womb and name it anything other than murder, they lack understanding. You see? When a culture claims the right to name and define and order itself with particular pronouns, it's not just an attack on the words or the names. It's an attack on God. It's an attack on His authority and His right understanding of that which He has created, which He owns and is His. It's an overthrowing of the Creator's understanding and the purposes for His creation. And it's an overthrowing of who we really are as humans. Even if they don't state it as one of their aims, it's an attack on the name of God, which is devastatingly foolish. It's nation-wrecking foolishness. Our world needs Jesus. Our world needs Jesus. Because one of the things that Paul's later tells us about heaven is this, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion, above every name that's named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So let me finish with this. This is something that happens right here in the very first day. God introduces Jesus the Word by means of Him speaking. When God speaks in day one of creation, He begins to introduce us to Jesus, the living Word of God. Jesus is God's perfect representative because Jesus is God. He's the very Son of God. Remember this. We we looked at this before. It's going to be critical to our understanding. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. In this beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. Jesus is the word of God's power to name children of God. Hebrews chapter 1 begins, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has created everything by the power of his word. Look to Jesus, the word. By a word, God created light. And by a word, he made the light of life shine in our hearts. And by faith in his name, we are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow to you as part of your creation. We love the things that you have made. We love more with complete and total allegiance the one who made them. You have our attention. You have our focus. You have given us life. And we look to you and say, Jesus did that. And it's amazing. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.